Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word, but we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. There are some people who believe that when Jesus returns again for his second coming, when he comes and puts his feet back on this earth at the Mount of Olives, that it will happen on Yom Kippur. It will happen on the Day of Atonement. And in the book of Zechariah, we read that on that day, the Jews who are alive and living in Jerusalem who look up and see this taking place with their own two eyes, will mourn and grieve because they realize, finally, that they missed the Messiah. They missed the coming of Jesus as their Messiah when he was first here on earth. But Zechariah prophecies that God will have mercy upon them, that Jesus will give them grace, and those who are there and alive and see him at that time will not be condemned for their unbelief, but in that moment they will believe, and when they do, he will save them and welcome them into his kingdom. That is one of the beautiful things about the solemn day of the Day of Atonement that we're going to talk about during this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the, in the uh, Small Stuff Bible Study. <laughs> so we are now just moving with lightning speed through the... <laughs> Uh, Feast of the Lord, uh, the seven appointed times uh, as to when uh, God told his people that they should uh, meet with him uh, to uh, do certain things at certain times at certain places. And uh, the actual word in Hebrew that uh, is called moedim, and that means appointed time. And so in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, uh, he gives them all seven of these in the same chapter. And uh, we have now made it to the sixth of those seven, uh, which is the Day of Atonement, or uh, Yom Kippur. And uh, it is celebrated on the tenth day of the seventh month. Uh, it's the second of the fall feasts. The first one is uh, Rosh Hashanah, um, which, or the Feast of Trumpets, which we said should be really the Feast of the Shofars, um, and that is on the first day of the seventh month of, called Tishri. And so then there's these ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when you're supposed to be uh, really evaluating your life, and these are called the Days of All, A-W-E, the Days of All. Those 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are set aside for you to reconcile with the Lord. And then you get to Yom Kippur, which is the highest holy day of all, uh, of all the seven uh, for the whole calendar. And we said last week that there's really no way to adequately describe just how solemn and serious the Day of Atonement uh, is for the Jewish people because uh, it's the day where uh, they 
reconcile, and really this is this the idea of Yom Kippur, if you had to boil it down to one word, it's reconciliation. Reconciliation. You're to reconcile yourself with the Lord. And the way you do that, as we learned last week, is through um, spiritual uh, inward look at your sins, uh, also a physical requirement of uh, fasting, and uh, then along with that is being um, reconciled with God through your confession of sins and your agree to repent of those sins and to agree to try to walk better uh, and better obedience with the Lord for the next year. And then, of course, back in Jesus' day and in the time of the Old Testament, there was also the sacrifice of the offerings, which was also part of uh, dealing with your sins and led you to this reconciliation with God. So that's really the idea of the Day of Atonement, is to is because what does sin do? Sin separates you from God, right? Sin puts a, a barrier between you and the Lord. And so to be reconciled to him, we as Christians have already been reconciled with him through the redemption that we receive through Christ on the cross. And so that has been done for us. We talked last week how, you know, you still, in my opinion, still ask for forgiveness daily for sins that you're committing, even though already they're forgiven. I think it's a good idea to confess those and to ask Lord the Lord to forgive those. And so that is how we are reconciled. We're reconciled through Christ and what he did on the cross. And just asking for forgiveness, that reconciles us. But for the Jewish people, um, they have rituals that they have to follow in obedience to get this reconciliation. And this Day of Atonement was the day when you dealt with your sins for the whole year and brought those before the Lord to be reconciled. So we're going to launch in. This is part two. Part one was last week. If you missed that, uh, check out the, um, the recording. If you didn't get it, let me know and I'll send it to you. Uh, so we're going to launch in here to part two today. And we're going to start with uh, to look at how the Day of Atonement, how Yom Kippur was uh, celebrated and observed during Jesus' day. But let's go back and let's get the historical uh, context for this. So turn in uh, your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to uh, take a look at what God said about this Day of Atonement. And we said last week, too, the whole idea of all of these things that God Mm -hmm. is telling them is that they're difficult. They're all difficult things to do. They are a burden on people. They're a burden on you. But it's a reminder that sin is a burden that you carry. And as you disobey God, you you carry this burden of sin with you. And so this is a reminder in what you have to do during this Day of Atonement that it's hard, it's difficult, it's a burden. Uh, and it reminds you of why you need God's uh, forgiveness. And so we'll start with verse uh, 26 of Leviticus 23. It says, Adonai spoke to Moses saying, however, the 10th day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur, a holy convocation to you. So you are to afflict yourselves. Uh, you are to bring an offering, and that's about being, you know, confessing your sin and looking inward and that kind of thing. Uh, you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that set day. And we said last week how, you know, some people believe you can't even brush your teeth, that that's work. You can't even uh, brush your hair, that that's work. And so that's a really strict um, situation there and requirement. Uh, for it is Yom Kippur to make atonement for you before Adonai, your God. For anyone who does not deny himself on that day, and there we talked about that's more, uh, this is uh, uh, more of the fasting kind of thing. Uh, if you do not deny yourself on that day, you must be cut off from your people. You will be um, excommunicated, as it were. And back in that day, when as a Jew you believed you were saved, you were going to be a part of God's kingdom for eternity only because you were Jewish. And so if you're... Um, high priest said to you, you're no longer Jewish in the eyes of God, 
then that was a very serious thing because it meant you were no longer a part of God's kingdom for eternity because you had been, been excommunicated. So they took this all very, very seriously. Um, verse 30, anyone who does any kind of work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. Destroy, does that mean that you'll, again, the idea of being excommunicated, destroy mean more than that? I mean, they're talking about even possibly the penalty of death if you work that day. I don't know, but you didn't want to take a chance, right? And that's why didn't brush your teeth, because you don't want to take a chance. You don't want to take a chance. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. So verse 31, you shall do no kind of work. He says it a second time. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It is to be a Shabbat, a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you are to humble your souls. On the ninth day of the month in the evening, from evening until evening, you are to keep the Shabbat, the Sabbath. So we talked about that is really the idea there is God is saying for this 24-hour period, and remember the day starts on the Jewish calendar at sunset from one day to sunset the next day, not in the morning or not at midnight. So what he's saying there is from sundown on the 9th of Tishri to sundown to the 10th of Tishri. That is the 24-hour period of the Day of Atonement. For that entire 24-hour period, you are to deal with your sins and to fast and to all these things that he's talking about here. And how some people even today still take that literally to be a 24-hour period. Uh, they stay up for 24 hours. Um, some synagogues will have services for a 24-hour period. And uh, in seeing some of the videos that I, I was watching for this, uh, it was said that some people who go to the, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they go and they take bedrolls uh, during the Day of Atonement, and they'll sleep there and spend the whole 24-hour period there. So these are all the kinds of things that, um, that this requires. Now let's go over to, real quick to Numbers, chapter 29. And then we see a little bit more about the specifics of the sacrifices that were to be made uh, during this time. So 29, um, let's see, start with verse 7. <clears throat> it says, on the tenth day of this seventh month, you are to have a sacred assembly. You are to not deny yourselves and do no work. You are to present Adonai burnt offering, a burnt offering as a pleasing aroma, one young bull from the herd, one ram, and a seven-year-old and seven-year-old male lambs without defect, along with their grain offerings of fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah with the bull, two tenths with the ram, and one tenth each with the seven lambs. Also offer one male goat for a sin offering, in addition to the sin offering for atonement, as well as the regular burnt offering with its grain offerings and their drink offerings. So um, there was this whole sacrificial system that was also part of uh, this um, day uh, that was supposed to be, um, you know, dedicated to the Lord, this 24-hour period. And that hasn't occurred since 78 Correct, yeah, since the temple was destroyed. So we're going to talk in a minute, what have, they, what have they replaced that with? And they have replaced it with something, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So, so let's look at how was uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, celebrated in Jesus' day. And in Jesus' day, there were three services on that day. There was a morning service, an afternoon service, and an evening service. And uh, in the morning, on the altar, uh, on the Day of Atonement, they would light four fires on the altar for the burnt offerings. Now, on all the other holidays uh, that we've talked about, they would light three fires. So on the Day of Atonement, again, to set that apart as different, uh, there was a fourth fire that was lit on the altar. Also on that day, we talked a little, uh, last week about it, uh, about this, is that the high priest would bathe himself completely, completely immerse himself in this golden bath to ceremonially clean himself before he would perform the rituals of uh, Yom Kippur. On the other holidays, he would simply wash his hands and his feet. So again, setting himself apart and aside in, uh, in a different way. And then we also talked about, we went back and we looked at last time, uh, Aaron, when he performed the ceremony for the first time, 
and it continued on up into Jesus' day, that on this day, the high priest had to wear, wear special white linen garments. Uh, all the other holidays, there were other garments he could wear, but on this day, he had to wear the white linen garments. And then we also talked about how this is the only time, the one time per year that the high priest could go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where he would uh, take care of the blood, uh, sprinkling the blood um, there. And uh, so this is the one day of year that he could do that. So in the morning service, it was pretty much just the usual morning service that they would normally have uh, at the temple. The real main service of Yom Kippur was the afternoon service. And in the afternoon service, the things that, these are the things that would happen. Uh, the, uh, the high priest and the priest would sacrifice a bull. And that bull was to atone for their sins, for the sins of the high priest and the sins of the priesthood who were there to um, assist uh, in all of these things that were happening as part of the Day of Atonement at the temple. And so, uh, and, and this was a burnt offering. So they would take the bull, they would sacrifice the bull, and then they would burn it on uh, the altar, uh, on, on the fires that were on the altar. Then a very interesting thing would take place. They would bring in two male goats, and they would choose lots. The, the high priest would choose lots. There were two lots, you know, randomly selected. And one of those lots would say, for Yahweh. And the other lot would say, for Azazel. Azazel. I think that's how you say it. Azazel. And, and then, you know, he would just randomly pick one. And this goat is for Yahweh. And this goat is for Azazel. And the goat that was for Yahweh would become the sacrificial goat and would be his blood would be taken and he, and it would be a burnt offering on the altar. But the one that got the goat for Azazel became what is known as the scapegoat. And on that goat, they would tie a red or a crimson strip of wool on one of its horns and set it aside. And that would be dealt with later on during the service. So, then they would have the burning of incense in the Holy of Holies. And what, what the priest would do is, what he was required to do, was to take coals, burning coals, from the fires on the altar, on which already the bull has been sacrificed as a burnt offering. And he would take those coals and put them in a censer, and take that into the Holy of Holies. And then there he would take incense and put it on in the censer where the burning coals were from the altar. And the incense would go into the Holy of Holies. So the burning of incense was important. Now, the interesting thing apart the, about that is it was really, really, really important that... <clears throat> the fire that burned the incense came from the altar where the bulls have already been sacrificed. How important was it? Well, let's look at Leviticus chapter 10 for just a minute. And we're going to see a time when the people, a couple of people did that without the proper coals in their censers. So Leviticus 10 verse 1. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own censer, put fire in it, laid incense over it, and offered unauthorized fire before Adonai. Why was it unauthorized fire? Because they said, I'll just take my censer and put, I'll just put a fire in it and we'll just use that. And we'll, put, and we'll take that in and we'll put the incense on that and it'll be good enough. Anytime you say to yourself, especially when it comes to serving the Lord and being obedient to him, it's good enough. It ain't good enough. The times I've gotten in most trouble in my life is when I've said to myself, I deserve that. I deserve this. 
when I start, when I say to myself, I deserve it, I don't do it because I know it's gotten me in trouble to me. Same thing, you say it's good enough. And they, so what happened? It says, which he had not command, which he had not commanded them. He said, you got to take the coals from the altar, from the fire, in the censers for the incense. So what happened? Verse two. So fire came out from the presence of Adonai and consumed them, and they died before Adonai. You know why you had to have the coals from the uh, altar where the bull had been sacrificed? Because those coals had blood on them. Blood for the redemption of sins is required. It's required. And so you can't go into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice for the sins of the nation as the high priest with fire that isn't the result of blood. And so what happens is you sacrifice the, the bull, the blood goes on the coals, you take the coals with the blood, you put them in the censer, you go and do the incense, and now there's blood introduced into that whole process. It's required. You have to have the blood of the sacrifice. And if you don't, bad things happen. Okay, so then, they, then the high priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it inside the Holy of Holies. And then they would sacrifice the goat and he would take that blood in and he would uh, sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. And then he would sprinkle the blood on the outside of the veil, which separated the Holy of Holies from the outer court. Now, in Jesus' day, back in like Moses' day, back in that day, there was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and they were sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But in Jesus' day, the Ark of the Covenant was gone. It, it wasn't around anymore. No one knows what happened to it. Right? Have you ever seen, uh, what's his name? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. No one knows where it is. Some people think Jeremiah hid it from the Babylonians, so they couldn't take it you know, to Babylon. But no one knows. But in Jesus' day, there was no... Uh, there was no ark, but there was what they call the foundation stone. In other words, the ark and, and all the things, you know, the, the angel, the, the cherubim, all that was set on a foundation stone inside the Holy of Holies, inside, uh, you know, the, the temple and so forth. And so in this, in the temple, there was this foundation stone. And so what the priests do, they, they would sprinkle the blood on that foundation stone. So, Here's something that's interesting to think about. Today, there's no longer a temple on that mount, right? What's there instead? A mosque. And what's that mosque called? Golden Mosque. It's called the Dome of the Rock. What rock? The same rock. In other words, the foundation stone that was in the Holy of Holies where the high priest went and made the sacrifice and, 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 and sprinkled the blood on that foundation stone is today the rock of the Dome of the Rock. It's the same. And God is just laughing in heaven. <laughs> so anyway, that's it's interesting. It's not a slab. I mean, it's not a slab of stone. Right. It's, it's yeah. the very mountain the foundation of the of abraham's attempted sacrifice correct so. yeah but it's it's and that foundation there in the dome of the rock I've, I've exactly seen that, and it's an actual yeah large... they've actually built a thing around it yeah. right exactly google it there's pictures on it they okay. think their cutouts were maybe the the uh that were actually where the foot holes for the uh for the uh things were that were there before, but, right. they, but they still, because of Abraham's sacrifice there, that's why it's the second most sacred place in Islam. But the, the, the cool thing about it is it's the same stone that was yeah, there. Yeah. It's the same exact stone, rock, mountain, whatever it is, it's the same place, right? It's the same, the same place. So, so let's get back to the scapegoat. So the scapegoat, this is the one that has the red crimson. This was for Azazel, right? So the high priest then would lay his hands on the head of that goat, and he would, he would sh he'd show it to the people, and he would lay his hands on its head. He would confess the sins of the people, and he would basically place the sins of the people onto this, through, through putting on hands, onto this goat, okay? And then 
a different priest would take that goat and lead it out of the eastern gate of the temple area, take it 10 miles out into the wilderness, and let it go. Now, back in the days when there was real wilderness out there, I mean, what are the chances of a lone goat on his own, 10 miles out in the wilderness, he was, cond- he was not going to make it, right? Too many predators. Uh, by the time you get to Jesus' day, there's like the, it's, you know, it's all built up. There's not as much wilderness, not as much distance. You could not have this scapegoat coming back, you know. Can't do that. It cannot come back. Uh, and so what they would actually do is the, the priest that would take it out there would make sure it didn't come back, and they would usually basically throw it over a cliff uh, to make sure it did not survive and did not wander back into town uh, later. So what was the what was the idea of this? Well, a couple of things. Um, for them in that day, it kind of represented their time in the wilderness as a nation and how they wandered in uh, the wilderness um, and how you know that generation that wandered in the wilderness all but two died in the wilderness because why? Because what's that? Unbelief. They did. They had a. Remember when they sent the twelve spies out to spy the promised land, and two of them came back and said, "No, we can't do there. Can't go there." And so God condemned the whole generation because of their lack of faith and belief that He would give them the promised land like He said He would. And so this is the idea that this because because of their disobedience, they died in the wilderness. And and this a scapegoat has the sins of the nation and he goes out in the wilderness and wanders and dies because he has the sins of the nation on him. Um, also, you know, for us, we can look at Jesus who was in the wilderness, right, for 40 days, but he could return from the wilderness, unlike the scapegoat, unlike the generation that was with Moses. Why? Because he had no sin. So he could go into the wilderness and he could return uh, from there. Um, The other idea for us symbolically as Christians is we always see Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And we should because it's the blood of the lamb that, you know, uh, saves us. The blood of the lamb saved the uh, Israelites in uh, Egypt. And the blood of the lamb and the sacrifices are the ones that help give you a way to deal with your sins and have your sins forgiven. And certainly through Jesus' blood, we receive forgiveness. Um, But the other idea, though, is that Jesus is also the scapegoat. And in that way, what I mean by that is Jesus takes our sins and takes them away from us. The scapegoat was taken away from the people away from where they were, into the wilderness, and never came back. In the same way, Jesus takes our sins and takes them away from us, and they never come back. So Jesus is in the, is the sacrificial lamb, but he's also in the, the scapegoat, uh, uh, the scapegoat as well. And so then they would have a public reading of Scripture. Uh, the high priest would read what we just read, the, the passages from Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, they would complete the burnt offerings for the day that we just read in Numbers. And then after uh, the service, the high priest would again bathe himself completely and immerse himself. And then they, he would change back to his regular clothes. And those he would never wear those white linen garments again. They were one and done with that kind of thing. And then the evening service was more like just their regular evening service. Uh, so that's the way that Yom Kippur was celebrated in Jesus' day. Today, uh, as Chuck said, uh, there is no um, sac- there are no sacrifice there are no animal sacrifices today. Obviously, so what have they done to replace uh, those sacrifices? Well, Yom Kippur is still a very serious, high holy day. Uh, it still has in it the uh, idea and the intention of being uh, atonement for your sin. Uh, They still uh, do no work. They still have a, um, uh, they still fast, generally speaking, and they still have services in the synagogue. Today, actually, they have like five services during the day of Yom Kippur. It is the 
most well attended uh, service of the year is kind of like our Easter. Uh, if you're going to go to synagogue one time a year, you're going on Yom Kippur. Just like, you know, if you come to church one day a year, it probably is going to be Easter. Um, they decorate the synagogues in white. Uh, they replace a lot of the things that are in there. Make sure they have like white tablecloths and, and white. And even uh, people generally who attend synagogue services also wear white, kind of their tradition. And um, what else? Uh, something else I can't remember. Oh, uh, now they also read Jonah. And the idea of Jonah is, number one, um, you come back to God. Uh, you can't get away from God. <laughs> you can't get away from God. Yeah. The best thing to do is come back to God. And uh, the whole idea of reconciliation, you know, Jonah through the fish, through all the things we read about in the book of Jonah, ultimately he was reconciled to God and that reconciliation. So that's all the idea that they read the book of Jonah. But what do they do instead of the sacrifices of the animals? So I, this was in this book um, that I've been using for a lot of our, um, our lessons. This is what it says. It says, the modern observance of Yom Kippur bears very little resemblance to its biblical observance. Modern observance is based more on the traditions of men than upon the pattern established in God's law. This is largely due to the influence of one man, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, the well-known rabbi during the days of the Roman destruction of the temple. Jewish history records, and then he's quoting, As Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai was coming forth from Jerusalem, Rabbi Joshua followed after him and beheld the temple in ruins. Woe unto us, Rabbi Joshua cried, that this, the place where the inquiries of Israel were atoned for, is laid to waste. My son, Rabbi Yohanan said to him, be not grieved. We have another atonement as effective as this. And what is it? It is the acts of loving kindness. And as it said, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Based on the words of this one rabbi, Israel abandoned atonement through the blood and sought it instead through mitzvot, which means good works. As a result, many traditions crept into the observance of Yom Kippur. So now the idea of Yom Kippur, in addition to all the dealing with the sin and the, the confession and the redemption and uh, the fasting and the synagogue service, also the idea of good works, making it a time of good works um, that um, is something that also gives you atonement, atonement through works, which we know is not really what it's all about, right? And so that be sort of like the sons using the coals that didn't have the blood? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's good enough, right? Right, good enough. No, nope, not good enough. So, all right, so where is Jesus in all of this? So strap on... <laughs> Because this is something I get really excited about. Okay. So where is Jesus in all of this? Okay. So the Day of Atonement, as we said, is about reconciliation. And so for us as Christians, as we're looking at this, where is Jesus? Well, this whole thing of the Day of Atonement foreshadows the reconciliation that will happen when with the Jewish people when Jesus returns for his second coming. Now, we're not talking here about um, the rapture. We dealt with the rapture in the Feast of Trumpets, and we said how Rosh Hashanah, there was the trumpet in Mount Sinai, and the trumpet with rapture, and how most people, many people think, and I agree, that when the rapture happens, I don't know what year it'll happen, but what day it'll happen, I think, will be Rosh Hashanah because of that. So. The Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, we're talking about the second coming, right? When Jesus comes and returns to establish his kingdom. And there will be, and we're going to see it here in a minute, a reconciliation between Jesus and the Jewish people when that happens. And so the Day of Atonement foreshadows Jesus' return in the second coming. And the real, realization by the Jews that they missed it that he really is the Messiah. 
So let's turn to um, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, okay? So we're going to start there. So this is a passage where you need your calculator in one hand and your Bible in the other. All right. So Daniel 9, and we're going to start with verse 22. This is one of the most important prophecies, I think, in the whole Bible, and in that it's giving you a time frame for Jesus' second coming. It doesn't tell you when it's going to happen specifically, but it gives you a clock to follow. So verse 22 of Daniel 9, it says, Oh, this is, by the way, this is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel in a vision, okay? So it says, this is uh, Daniel writing, he, meaning Gabriel, instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your request, in other words, at the beginning of your, he was praying, at the beginning of your request, at the beginning of your prayer, a message went out and I have come to, and I have come to declare it to you. For you are greatly esteemed. Wouldn't it be nice to have some angel say to you, you're greatly esteemed? Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Okay. So, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed concerning your people and your holy city. So this, this time frame, this, this prophecy is talking about Daniel's people, the Jews, and Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. He says, 70 weeks are decreed. Now, remember we talked about the time frame between first fruits and the um, Feast of Weeks, and how that is seven weeks, 49 days. It's seven sets of seven days, and then one other day, so it's 50 days. And in that time frame and counting, seven weeks means seven weeks, seven sets of seven days. But in this prophecy, weeks are not weeks. Weeks is symbolic for years. So when it says 70 weeks, and if it weeks translates to years, how many years are in a week? No, well, no, seven, right? So a week of years is seven years, because you have seven days in a year, so seven. So a week of years is seven years. So what he's saying here is that the weeks are a set of seven years. So 70 weeks means 70 sets of seven years. So 70 times seven equals 490 years. So what he's talking about here is a time frame of 490 years. What said, chapter are you in? Because I'm not. Oh, chapter reading. nine, Daniel. Oh, I thought you said two. I'm sorry, That's Daniel two. nine. We're now at verse twenty-four. Okay. All right. You would be really confused if you. <laughs> okay, it's hard enough as it is. Yeah. Okay, so four hundred ninety years are decreed concerning your people, the Jews, and your holy city Jerusalem, to put an end to transgression, to bring sin to an end, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. So guess what? All of that, all of that can only happen one time. All of that can only happen when Jesus comes back, second coming, to set up his kingdom on earth. All, I mean, these things don't, end of transgression, end of sin, atone for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the whole, that only happens on Jesus' second coming. So what he's saying is here, this is about Jesus' second, this whole passage is about Jesus' second coming. Okay. Actually, it's first coming too, so. Verse 23. So no one understand. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the you probably have anointed one, the Masiach, Masiach is what I have in mind, but the Messiah. Until the time of Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, so let's go back. We historically know approximately when the clock starts, okay? He tells us, no one understand, from the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. We know when that happened. So if you want to see it, turn over to Ezra. Chapter 7, 
Ezra 7, I'm going to start with verse 11. Now this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a teacher of matters pertaining to the mitzvot. The mitzvot, we just don't know what that means. I mean, it's good deeds, good works, pertaining to the good works of Adonai and his statutes over Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, I have now issued a decree that anyone in my kingdom from the people of Israel, even to the priests and the Levites, who wish to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And then it skips down to verse 21. I, King Artaxerxes, hereby issue a decree to all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates and diligently provide all that Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may ask of you. So this is the decree that Gabriel's talking about here to Daniel. And so when did this happen? Well, we don't know exactly when it happened, but we know it was generally between 445 B.C. and 458 B.C. So let's just, for the sake of argument, round it off and say 450 B.C., which is approximately in the middle of that. So this decree happened 450 B.C. Okay? All right. So it says, from the issuing of that decree in 450 B.C. until the time of Messiah, the prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The seven weeks there translates to seven sets of seven years is 49 years. So basically, they're saying, he's saying, it's going to take about 49 years to complete this restoration of Jerusalem. And it just so happens that we know about when that happened because that was about the time that Malachi was writing his prophecy that we find in the Old Testament of Malachi. At the end of that time period, Malachi wrote his prophecy, his prophecies. So uh, keep that in mind for just a minute. So there's going to be that seven weeks, that 49 years from the time the decree is issued to the time that that work is generally done. And Malachi writes his prophecy. Then it says, and then another 60, so there'll be seven weeks for that to happen, 49 years, and then 62 weeks. This is why I say you have to have a calculator. This is 62 sets of seven years. 62 times seven is 434 years. 434 years. Now, that means between the time that Malachi wrote Malachi and the time that the Messiah comes to Israel, there's going to be 434 years. Now, I looked up in six references yesterday about when did Malachi write Malachi. You know what they all say? We don't know for sure, but about 430 B.C. Okay? So I'm going to say that between Malachi and the end of his writing. I mean, we always say it's 400. We always say, right? There was a quiet time for the Old Testament, New Testament, about 400 years. We all say that all the time. Well, it's 434 years because that's what the evil said it was going to be. So from the time that Malachi wrote, the Jerusalem is finished, to the time that the Messiah come is 434 years, which works out pretty close, right? To when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Okay, let's keep going. It, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with plaza and moat, but it will be in times of distress. We know if you read Ezra and Nehemiah that this was not easily done. There was a lot of opposition to building Jerusalem back in the wall and all of that. Then after the 62 weeks, after those 434 years, after those 62 weeks, Messiah will be, what does your Bible say? What, what I'm in chapter 9 still, <laughs> verse 26. Okay. Then after 62 weeks, Messiah will be well, cut off, okay, and have nothing. That means he will die. That means he will be executed. After 62 weeks, he will be cut off and have nothing. So how old was Jesus when he was crucified? 33. And when did Artaxerxes make that uh, That. Prophecy, I mean, when did he make that decree? 450 B.C., right? So you take 450 B.C., and you add 33 to Jesus' age when he died, and that's hot. 483, right? 450 plus 33 is 483. And how many did we say? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. If you take seven weeks and 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks. 
And you know, if you take 69 sets of seven years, you know what it equals? 69 times seven equals 483 years. 450, 33, 483 is exactly the number that Gabriel gave Daniel, that that's how long it would be between the time of that declaration of Artaxerxes to when Messiah would die. It works out exactly to the day. So let's go on. Then, um, then the people of a prince who is to come. Now, if you notice, this is a different prince because the prince up in the verse 25 is a capital P. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. But here in this verse 26, then the people of a prince will come. That P is a small P, right? Because this prince is Antichrist. This prince is the Antichrist. So then the people of the Antichrist who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come like a flood. Until the end of the war that is decreed, there will be destruction. Then he will make a firm covenant. Okay, let's hold there for a minute. So up at the very beginning in verse 24, Gabriel says, 70 weeks are decreed. 70, right? If we come down to to the verse here where it says, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks, right? So Gabriel says 70 weeks, but we only have accounted for here 69 weeks. In other words, when Jesus was crucified, that was the end of the 69th week in this clock. Okay? We still have one more week to go. What happened is, when Jesus was crucified, God stopped the clock. Okay? He stopped the clock. And that clock has been stopped even today. He stopped it for this church age that we're now living in today. So God owes us one more week, one more set of seven years. Well, it's coming. And here's where it talks about it in verse 27. Then he, meaning Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with many. And what he's going to do there, he's going to make a truce, a treaty with the Jews in Jerusalem, in Israel. For one week. How long is that going to be? Seven Seven years. So Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with the people of Israel and the Jews for a seven-year time period. Do you know, have you heard of the tribulation? You know how long the tribulation lasts? Seven years. That's the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. And when does God start the clock again? It tells you right there. When Antichrist makes a firm covenant with the Israelites, with the Jews in Jerusalem, for one week, in when that contract, when that truce, when that treaty is signed, God starts the clock again, and the 70th week begins, the last seven years of human history. And it says, but in the middle of the week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. The middle of seven years is what? Three and a half, Three and a half years. So what's going to happen is he's going to, and it says, he'll put an end to what? Sacrifice and offering. What's that? They got to have the temple again. So the temple has, so part of this treaty that he's going to make is going to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple and start their sacrificial system again and their offerings again. So of course, guess what? The Jewish people say, he's the Messiah. He now has started the kingdom of God from on earth for us. But he's a liar, and three and a half years into that, he changes the deal. And you know what he does? He says, no, you worship me. And he puts a statue of himself in the temple, and it becomes an abomination then to the Jewish people because they can't worship him, although some of them will. But the world will worship him. And uh, But now, when that happens, the Jews become a problem for him, and then there's... He persecutes the Jews for the last three and a half years, and things get really bad. So anyway, it says, and on a wing of abominations, uh, which is part of what he does in the temple by putting himself in there, will come one who destroys until the decreed annihilation is poured out on the one who is... So until the decreed annihilation is poured out on the one who destroys. So in other words, what Daniel is saying, what Gabriel is saying is, uh, he's going to get his. He's going to get his. So when does he get his? Well... Turn, if you will, to Zechariah. And this is talking about the end of Antichrist and 
the reconciliation of the Jewish people with Jesus. So Zechariah 12. It says, A burden of the word of Adonai concerning Israel, a declaration of Adonai who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the surrounding peoples when they besiege Jerusalem as well as Judah. So in other words, at the end of the seven-year period, there's going to be a time where the Antichrist's forces will be at war with uh, Israel, and, and they will surround Israel. The enemy forces will besiege Jerusalem. But guess what? God says uh, they're going to do that, but Jerusalem is going to be a cup of reeling for them. In other words, it's going to be a problem. So it goes on, verse 3, Moreover, in that day I will make Jerusalem a massive stone for all those people. All who try to lift it will be cut to pieces. Nevertheless, all the nations of the earth will be gathered together against her. In that day, it is a declaration of Adonai, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will keep my eyes on the house of Judah, but will blind every horse of the peoples. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength through Adonai, Setsavuat, their God. I don't know how you say that, but basically that word there means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. So it says, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Verse 6, in that day I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile. Fire pot wins there. Like a burning torch among sheaves, the burning torch wins there. They will devour on the right and on the left all the surrounding peoples, yet Jerusalem will remain in her place. In Jerusalem, Adonai will also, also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and the honor of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not exceed that of Judah. In that day, Adonai will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the weakest among them that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Adonai before them. It will happen in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so Antichrist is defeated, the nations are defeated, and God's people win. Now, verse 10. This is such a huge, important verse in all the Bible. It says, Then I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication when they look toward me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, mourning like the valley of Megiddo. So what is this? This is the moment that Jesus returns. This is describing what happens when Jesus sets his foot, feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Because why? How do we know that? Because it says, I will proud house with a spirit of grace. They will look toward me. They will be able to see him. If you're in Jerusalem at this time, you'll be able to see him. And that me, me who they pierce, and they will mourn. Why would they mourn? Why would they grieve? Because they realize they were wrong about him all this time. They will see him come. In other words, if you're a Jew and you're living in Jerusalem and you see this happen, you're going to mourn and grieve that you misunderstood who Jesus was. But he's not going to condemn them. It says he's going to what? Give them a spirit of grace and supplication. He's going to save them. And they will be reconciled to Christ in that moment. When, if you're in Jerusalem and you're a Jew, when the second coming of Jesus and you see it and you see it happen, you will be saved because you will see, I missed it, I was wrong, I'm more, I'm sorry, and God will give you grace and will save you. Now, we have a two-minute video. I just want it because he deals with this and he does a really good job with it. And I just want to reinforce um, this so you can see what he says, which is great. And then we'll close it after that. Is Ezekiel 38 and 39, is that this battle, or is that something earlier? In Russia with all of the forces? Yeah, it's, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. battle. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. That's like, I just want to, here it comes. Yeah. 
This is Zola Levitt, remember. For this was I born, he said. Well, the Jews will have a day of atonement when he return. returns. Uh, the prophecy is clear. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says, uh, They shall look upon me whom they've pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son, and a fount of cleansing will be opened unto the house of David. I almost choke up when I say that here, because here's where he's coming. We're at the summit of the Mount of Olives. If, if he came now, I would be looking straight at him, straight in front of me. He's coming out of heaven to this place, and everybody on the ground will look up and see him, and when they look upon him whom they've pierced, and mourn for him when they do a, a real atonement of their own because they see who he is and they realize what, what happened, uh, then, uh, then they will be saved. As Paul says in Romans 11:26, all Israel will be saved when the deliverer shall come out of Zion. But you may say, well, then I don't need a witness to my Jewish neighbor now. Oh, you do, because <laughs> he has to survive. If you don't witness to him, he has to survive the tribulation period, the blasphemy of the Antichrist, Armageddon. And he has to be here when the Lord comes to look and see him. Uh, much better is to come to Christ now and, and go on to the, the wedding in heaven, to the, to the uh, judgment seat of rewards, to the, to the wonderful kingdom. Uh, my goodness, uh, what a difference. So uh, by all means witness. I always say if you can only say one thing to any witness, see a Jew or a Gentile say, I'll be leaving. Then when you're gone in the rapture, nobody will fool him with any delusion. Uh, you will have been there first with the truth. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, All sin and fall short of the glory of God, and it means all. And so we all need to repent. Well, the last word that Jesus gave to the churches when he was here on earth was not really be my representatives in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remote parts of the earth. That's the last thing he said after the resurrection. But he returned in the book of Revelation, as you recall, and uh, he visited with John. And he said uh, that that time he, he reviewed the seven churches of Asia. Five out of those seven churches needed to repent. He said again and again, repent of thy ways and so on. Only the church at Smyrna, which was being persecuted, and the uh, church of Philadelphia, brotherly love, the church of the open door that opened both ways, uh, neither of those did he say to repent, but the others he said, repent or I'll remove your candlestick which is to say, I'll take that oil lamp out of there. It won't be like the tabernacle anymore with the menorah, but it will be an empty place with God not in it. So uh, they are warned to repent. We are warned to repent. And the Jews have always done that on the Day of Atonement. Okay, so the Day of Atonement is about reconciliation and it foreshadows. It's not really foreshadowing for us as Christians because we have already received our redemption, but it foreshadows what the Jewish people will experience ultimately when this all takes place. The last thing I want to say is this. There's a difference between atonement and redemption. And we don't need atonement because we've been redeemed. Atonement is a covering of your sins. We're going to talk about it from the very beginning. The word in uh, Hebrew for atonement means a covering. It's a temporary thing. Uh, when you had your sins atoned for through all of these sacrifices and so forth, it was a covering of your sin. But you had to do the atonement every year, every year, every year. You don't, Jesus doesn't have to be crucified every year, every year. You don't have to be, be saved every year after year after year. And so what we have is redemption, not atonement. On the cross, God redeemed us from our sins. He didn't atone for our sins. So what's the difference? Uh, atonement means temporary covering. Redeeming, redemption means completely free from your sin forever. So let me give you an analogy to help you uh, understand it. If you go into a store after church today and you buy something with your credit card, that's a covering of what you bought. In other words, that store will let you walk out of that store with that product, not because you paid cash for it or paid money for it, because you gave them a credit card that's covering the cost of that item temporarily. But there will come a day when you get that bill, right? 
in the future when you still have to deal with it. You still have to pay for it. So the credit card is your atonement for that purchase that covers it until a later date when you still have to deal with it. Redemption is you go into that same store, you still use a credit card, you buy that thing, and I come to you and I say, I'm going to pay that for you. I'm going to pay that bill for you when you get it. And so redemption is what so happens is Christ paid for your sin debt and you never have to pay for it yourself. So you have a credit card, you bought something, someone else comes along and pays it for you and it's gone and you don't ever have to pay for it because someone else paid for it uh, for you and you're completely free from that debt. That's the difference between atonement and thank God we got redemption from Christ. So. That's all I got, guys. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.